This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I'm Sarah Jaffe. I'm a labor journalist by trade and the author of a couple of books, one of which is sitting behind me somewhere um, called Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt. And I'm here to moderate today's conversation, which is Voices from the Frontline, Healthcare Workers and the Fight Against COVID. So first, we'll have Tamara Campbell is a radiologist technologist at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital in Sonoma County, California, a member of the National Union for Healthcare Workers and on the current contract bargaining team. Workers at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital were just on a five-day strike against proposed austerity cuts to benefits, the largest healthcare worker strike in the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can read more about that in a recent Labor Notes article. Elizabeth Lalas is a registered nurse at Stroger Hospital in Chicago, a steward with National Nurses United, and a delegate to the upcoming 2020 California Nurses Association National Nurses Organizing Committee Convention. She contracted COVID-19 and then returned to work on a COVID-only unit that primarily served people incarcerated in Cook County Jail. And Ashley Payne is a Service Employees International Union local 1021 member representing 900 county social services workers and a delegate to the Contra Costa County Central Labor Council. She is on the steering committee for the Democratic Socialist Labor Commission and a co-chair of East Bay Democratic Socialists of America Racial Solidarity Committee. So we're going to start off with Jenny, and each of our speakers is going to take about eight to 10 minutes to tell you a little bit about their work and what it's been like during the pandemic. So Tammy, take it away. Hello. Um, I've been working at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital, which is the region's only trauma center, level two trauma center, serving three counties um, in our area. And um, we've certainly been through hard times together before. Um, The two wildfires, the Tubbs Fire and the Kincaid Fires in 27 and 2019, were exactly in our service area. And during the Tubbs Fire, we lost about 5,600 houses in the county in one night. And a lot of the people who lost houses work at my hospital. And I'm proud to have worked alongside many people who literally came to work without shoes because they were running from their house. And these people did not miss shifts. Um, We were the only large hospital in the county open during both of those fires. So I say that to kind of set the stage um, for our commitment to our community. We have been there. We will be there. Um, Providence took over our hospital and Providence likes to um, have people think it's a humble Catholic ministry, but really it only plays one on TV. Um, Providence is the nation's third largest nonprofit hospital chain, and they have... um, They've made an operating profit of about $200 million off of my hospital alone 
since 2017, which is when they took over operations. Um, they have $12 billion in cash reserves, $5 billion of that essentially in a checking account. Um, they are not hurting for money. And they set aside about $2 million for bonuses for about 21 executives in the Northern California region. So I'm, I take x-rays. I don't do math. That's about a hundred grand, um, an executive, which, you know, it's good work if you can get it. Um, we had been bargaining for over a year and you guys all know the power differential that happens with bargaining. Um, the workers are not paid to be there. The workers are dealing with potential retaliation when they speak out about these things. Um, and Providence really did their best to maximize that power differential. We bargained for over a year. Initially, they wanted to cut paid time off and they wanted to eliminate the most popular health insurance option, one that about half of our 740 members are on. Um, and that wouldn't be a problem, except that the other options are untenable for people who might actually get sick and need to see a doctor. Um, they reintroduced that most popular option, but, you know, tried, tried to poison pill it by insisting on 25% annual increase in premiums, which would more than double the cost of coverage at the end of a four-year contract. Um, they said at the time that those things were to bring our hospital in line with other Providence practices. This is the first contract that we've negotiated directly with Providence. Um, they started out with a one and a half percent annual pay increase, which is embarrassing. Um, rent for a two bedroom apartment in my county is about twenty five hundred dollars a month. Um, buying a house here, you, you need to have at least a half million dollars to buy a starter house in this county. Mm -hmm. So one and a half percent is not, it's not gonna cut it. Um, we resisted those changes. They finally got up to 3%. They held firm to cutting paid time off. The paid time off cuts were for longer term employees. Um, new employees would get more days off to start with, but obviously that may be zero sum for them. It's not zero sum for me. Um, I love what I do. Being a radiologic technologist gives me a tremendous amount of variety. I take x-rays and in a normal day, I might be in the operating room with an orthopedic case, somebody's broken leg, and then I'll go to the emergency room for a COVID patient or to the COVID floor. I might x-ray a newborn in the neonatal intensive care unit. I might go to the oncology floor. I might see an outpatient. I see the whole hospital almost every day. And I love it. Um, and that allows me to see how COVID has affected the different parts of the hospital. Um, it hit in February, March, and everybody shut everything down. We, we cut hours dramatically because we cut all elective procedures. Slowly but surely, that worked its way back up. And in February, we were to the point where we voted for a strike. We had a super majority of members voting and 94% of those who voted, voted in favor of a strike. But then COVID hit and we said, in good conscience, we can't do this. But the bargaining didn't get any farther. And the cuts they were talking about initially as bringing us in line with Providence were now because of COVID. Well, they didn't calculate that COVID would make us even more unwilling to take a loss of paid sick days and health insurance that's too expensive. 
because what have we learned from this, except that it's very dangerous to make people work when they're sick, and it's very dangerous for people to not have access to health care. So the hospital ramped up its elective procedures, and um, they did more cases in the operating rooms in June this year than they did last. We weren't making any progress in bargaining, and we voted again. And this time, we got 100 more votes in favor of striking. Um, the hospital started a huge campaign against us, unfair labor practices. We currently have eight ULPs filed, and I'm sure we'll have more in the days to come. Um, we agonized over the decision to strike because of COVID, um, and not just from a public relations standpoint, but from a we love our patients and want to take care of them standpoint. Um, but I can't continue to keep other people warm by setting myself on fire, and neither can everybody else. So we decided to go out. Um, we still have problems with PPE. A week and a half ago, one of my colleagues reported requesting an N95 to go into a, a suspected COVID room in the emergency room, and she was denied. And the person, the keeper of the N95s argued with her. Um, the, my hospital will not test us for COVID. I have an immediate coworker who's been out with COVID for three weeks, and I've had countless interactions with COVID patients. Um, and I've been monitoring my temperature for four and a half months now. Oh. And um, <laughs> and at one point, I even spiked a fever myself. But they told me when I felt better, I could just come back to work. Um, they are also not approving workman's compensation for workers who get COVID. We have 12 to 15 members right now who have had COVID. And they are expected to prove that they got it at work. And so far, not one of them has been successful. Um, they will test, they will do a fairly quick test on people who wanna have a hip replacement, but those tests are not available for, um, for workers who've had exposures. Um, our surge tent remains unused, but we do have more patients. I looked at the count today. We've had about 3,200 cases in my county, 42 deaths. About 1,600 cases are active at this point. Um, and for the first time, uh, a, a community emergency, we're not the only hospital open. So the, the 40 to 50 patients who require hospitalization are spread out throughout the county. Um, when we announced our strike, the hospital cut our uh, pay offer to 2%, expressed their grave disappointment, and then refused to hold any more COVID safety meetings with the union. And these were weekly meetings where we talked about um, what, what PPE do we need for this procedure or that procedure? Who's in charge of transporting COVID patients? Here's a problem we had getting a terminal clean in a room. These are absolute nuts and bolts of employee and patient safety. And while they were disappointed that we weren't going to work, that we were going to go on strike during COVID, um, they weren't so disappointed that they didn't feel entitled to have a hissy fit and stop meeting with us. Um, I love my job. I love my patients. I love the fact that I see the whole hospital every day. And I love the acuity of the patients who come into our hospital. Um, when people find out what I do for a living, they ask me two questions. They say, how do you do what you do? 
and what's the worst thing you've ever seen? And how do I do what I do? I do it because, because patients are wonderful and because I can help them and because that's a calling for me. Um, what's the worst thing I've ever seen? I'm sorry. I only talk about that in the therapist's office, but, um, <laughs> cause I've seen some stuff, but, um, and I think that the COVID debate around employee rights has been asking the wrong question. The question is how can you go on strike during COVID? And my question is how can a hospital chain with $12 billion in the bank who just got a half a billion dollars of federal bailout money, how can they do the very things that make us less safe? They know now more than ever that fewer sick days and unaffordable health care are tremendously dangerous, and yet they held to that. So they are responsible. That's my bit. First, as soon as I have to come back in, there's a siren going by, um, just to, to punctuate everybody's point, right? Uh, but this is not over. Um, anyway, thank you, Tammy. Um, and now hand it over to Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, my name is Elizabeth Lalish, like Sarah said, and I'm a registered nurse. I work at Strozier Hospital, otherwise better known as Cook County Hospital. Uh, it's the public sector safety net hospital in the city. Um, it's a trauma level trauma one center. Um, I've worked there and it's also the busiest hospital in the, in the state of Illinois. Um, and my healthcare system is actually the second largest public healthcare system in the United States next to New York. So, um, I've worked there for about 10 years. Um, I work on what is called the medical surgical floors, which, uh, and, uh, I sort of it to characterize it. So, to break it down for people is basic nursing, except that's not at all what we see in my safety net hospital. Um, you know, the military trains at my hospital in the trauma center. So that might give you some sense of sort of the severity of the patients that we see on a regular basis. So, you know, over the last 10 years, you know, I see all sorts of things, much like Tammy was talking about that, you know, we don't really talk about. And I think healthcare workers in general, um, don't talk about what they see, but we're really strong people. I mean, people who work in my hospital, I also love working where I work. Um, it is a black institution in the city of Chicago. It's the hospital where people of color come um, to be taken care of. It has been that way for over a hundred years. Um, it's a really challenging environment. Uh, my coworkers and patients um, are wonderful. There are good days and bad days, but honestly, like I said, we handle a lot at my hospital. And so, um, you know, uh, my experience prior to COVID really has been a hospital that's been underfunded and understaffed. I'm sure that's similar to most hospitals in the United States, but in particular, a safety net hospital like mine. Um, and, you know, so staffing has always been an issue. Um, short supplies have always been an issue. Dealing with, um, you know, people of color who Blacks and Latinx and people of color who come in, who have no insurance, who are homeless. I work with a whole population of the detainees from the Cook County Jail I have for years um, who are there honestly for, you know, a lot of serious um, health care issues that are not handled, um, uh, including mental health. 
the Cook County Jail is the largest or one of the largest mental health uh, facilities in the entire country, um, rather than my hospital or somewhere else in the city, um, as well as every other thing you can think of. And a lot of the talk about, you know, black and Latinx and people of color who have COVID having comorbidities, we see that every day. And so it's, it's a great environment. Um, and we, we really take care of our patients there and people, all of my coworkers from nurses all the way through all of the hospital staff are people who are very dedicated to that. You can't work there. Um, if you're not dedicated to actually, um, a more equitable kind of healthcare system. And so, you know, when COVID hit, um, and it hit Chicago, uh, in March, um, through about May. Um, and I'll talk about kind of, it feels like it's coming back full circle because they're talking about, um, a surge happening again, um, here in the state of Illinois in Chicago, um, because of what's happening in the rest of the country with the spikes in numbers, which is literally, I think just going across the entire country at this point, and there's no place that isn't going to see a surge, but, um, in late March, um, I actually became COVID positive. Um, I became COVID positive at my hospital. Um, I was wearing a surgical mask at the time. I had a patient who, unfortunately, and I think this is across hospitals, because there was no national plan and there was uh, basically was put upon hospitals um, and healthcare systems to come up with their own plan, there was really no way that people were being tested at the level that they should. There was no contact tracing. The PPE, our PPE was locked up, our N95 masks. I'm sure people have talked about this and heard about this in the news. were locked up prior to this. Um, so I became positive from a patient that also, you know, honestly, the medical staff said was a low risk. And that was pretty terrifying for all of us. Um, and, you know, uh, it was a situation in which, you know, none of my coworkers uh, knew that I tested COVID positive. I had to tell them. Um, and I ended up, you know, going out for, um, 18 days. Um, and that in and of itself was a frightening experience because it was so unknown. And so individually, I feel like, um, I've gone through a lot of anxiety and a lot of trauma, just trying to deal with it and having my employer actually kind of tried to put the, the responsibility back on me. I was literally asked by one of my managers if maybe I hadn't gotten COVID out in the community while I was pumping gas. Um, and I had to tell her flat out, no, the hospital uh, is, the, is the place where I got this. It's a Petri dish, unfortunately, in hospitals because of the lack of a plan and that they were responsible for it. So, um, you know, I, I, I went through an individual experience. So I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit, just the unknown and us not knowing what COVID does, it really just turns everything upside down. I mean, completely upside down. And again, as healthcare workers, as a nurse, you know, I'm used to healing people. I'm used to helping people get better. And this just completely uh, turned us all around. And so it was very difficult to go through that process um, and not to know what would happen to me. Um, luckily I had, uh, a really incredible support network. I had nurses, fellow nurses helping me and checking in on me every day to see that I was all right. And a huge support network, which really does say something about the fact that it isn't a broader, you know, societal response to individuals, but that it's actually about the people immediately around you with the expertise 
um, and, and with the care to actually take care of you. So, um, you know, I even planned out what emergency room I would go to in case I had to be hospitalized and cleared it with my insurance. Uh, so it was crazy in that sense to go in that situation, to be out COVID positive. And, um, I then came back on once I got better, um, to a COVID only unit with, uh, detainees from the Cook County jail. So that created a whole new level of anxiety for me that within the course of just 18, 20 days, we had changed over to that on my unit. Um, as I mentioned before, for years, we've worked with some detainees from the Cook County jail. Um, and it became an epicenter, um, for the outbreak, both here in the city, but also nationally, as you might imagine in a prison, there's no way to do social distancing. There's no way to do adequate sanitation and hand washing. And it was really obvious when I came back. So my coworkers had been dealing with it for a number of weeks prior to me coming back in, really helped me through the situation of what it would mean to actually do PPE, how you actually interact with the patients. And I'll say it was really eye-opening. I mean, nurses are used to interacting with our patients on a regular basis, like, you know, every time they call, every time they need something. And it really created a situation for us that that relationship that you develop with your patient was, it was cleaved, right? Because not only this is an incredibly contagious virus that we don't have any kind of cure for or treatment, we're working on that. Honestly, frontline healthcare workers, we're the ones that are leading really on that and trying to figure out how to make things better, but that we had a lack of personal protective equipment and therefore nurses and myself and my coworkers and the nursing aides became the main people who would go into patients' rooms. We did everything. We passed trays, we gave respiratory treatments, we even put telephones into rooms for the social workers and the doctors because they wanted to be able to talk to their patients, but because we didn't have PPE, um, we were the ones who had to go in so that they could communicate with their patients. So, um, and, and it led to a lot of anxiety amongst my coworkers. I had coworkers who literally, you know, ha couldn't go back home to their family members, right? So they would stay. I had one coworker in particular who's, uh, her daughter, uh, actually lived at one of the, at the campus close to the hospital. She lived in that apartment for about a month and a half because she had immunocompromised, uh, grandparent, you know, um, in that lived in her home. So she had to stay away. And there were any number of cases in which that's what happened with the pandemic. So that's, you know, about in the end, um, it wasn't just me who became COVID positive, but at my hospital out of 900 nurses, uh, over a hundred of us were actually tested positive, which really shows the lack of preparation, um, the lack of a plan. I mean, that's really one of the things I think coming out of this COVID crisis is just starkly obvious is that there was no plan, um, that the frontline healthcare workers were the people who actually had to push our management in our hospital to understand what it means to do our work every day. And that we were the people demanding proper personal protective equipment. It was a huge fight for us. And so, um, luckily no one I'll say in my hospital, none of the nurses, um, became sick and died. Um, but the hospitals down the street from ours, that is unfortunately wasn't the case. So obviously it's created a whole series of, of people who have not only tested positive, I think it's almost a hundred thousand healthcare workers across the country, as well as hundreds of, of nurses have died. Um, and so in other places across the country. And so 
you know, I, that experience has really been, uh, made people very anxious and it was also traumatizing. I mean, I think healthcare workers where the surges actually died down have become a bit more quiet. Um, I know I was just talking to some nurses in New York. I mean, what they went through, I, I can't even imagine, right? It, it was apocalyptic in New York. And so it was very bad here as well. I mean, Chicago's noted as being one of the places where numbers were actually incredibly high, mainly people of color, blacks, Latinx families. So once my, you know, my, uh, my unit turned, uh, it, you know, and, and going into patients' rooms was no longer taking care of inmates from the Cook County Jail. It took care of Latinx families, literally brothers who were in rooms next to each other, family members were going. That was, I mean, all of that that we talk about in the news and that studies have been done is the reality of, of who it affected. And so, you know, um, you know, it, it, it just, the trauma and, and, and what healthcare workers have experienced is really real. And I feel like it's become normalized in, in some ways. And it's only been four or five or six months, maybe, where that feels like what has been happening to us is something that, you know, maybe people take for granted at this point, but it's still an ongoing crisis. And like I said, they're talking about a second wave coming in, another surge here in Chicago, which makes us all quite anxious. I just actually went on the internet. I bought my own stockpile of PPE because I no longer trust my employer to provide it in the way we need it. So I'm, I'm buying some more PPE because I'm worried that we won't have it. And, and just about what we actually did to fight, which I think is really the upside of all of this, people need to know that healthcare workers, just like what Tammy was talking about, I'm sure Ashley will talk about it, have fought. In our hospital, we fought for everything mm -hmm. and we won just about everything, which I'm saying N95 masks, we had to fight for gowns because we were being told to reuse them according to the CDC guidelines. Um, we had to fight for head and foot covers. Literally, some of us went out and, and bought shower caps to put on our heads and our feet. And then we just had to humiliate through press conferences and calling, you know, the, the county politicians and doing all sorts of things, our administration to say we need these things and that you know, we're, we're advocates of the precautionary principle in my union, which means rather safe than sorry, right? So don't minimize, maximize. And so we press them to that. Um, and, and, you know, around pay, around COVID pay, like I said, I became positive. They literally fought us and said to me while I was sick that I needed to use my own sick time when they actually made me sick. It's an occupational disaster in this country for healthcare workers and hospitals are responsible. And so we fought and finally won that. Um, and right now we've recently had a fight inside the hospital. Just last week, we did a, a march to our bosses, to the CEO um, and the chief nursing officer about paying us basically what we call pandemic pay, which is because we did all those jobs that were um, everyone else's. And again, I cannot blame anyone for if we don't have the PPE, if you're a therapist or a dietitian or an environmental that you can't go into the room, we're saying we should be compensated for it. And they're saying that they don't have the money for it. And maybe we didn't work that hard is actually what they told us, which just enraged people. And we received $77 million from the CARES Act. And they're telling us that they can't pay us for that. So that's a huge fight that will be ongoing. Um, and I think that that really is, is, 
is the upshot. We've learned to rely on ourselves in the hospital, and we know that that's going to be important in this next possible surge. We also, and and maybe um, hopefully we'll be able to talk about this more, once there was a little bit of a downtick in the number of COVID patients, and, and my unit did go back to being just a patient-only unit, um, a lot of our nurses started to participate in the Black Lives Matter movement demonstrations that were happening in the city um, and around the country because just felt like that was incredibly important. Seeing what we saw every day with our patients, like I described them, it was absolutely necessary for us to be able to get out there and support those protesters and to and actually support the demand uh, of, you know, ending police brutality, defunding the police, um, and also really having frank discussions inside of our union about what it means to address racism within healthcare. So I, I'll stop with that. But those are some of the things in my experience around what happened and what is going to continue to happen around COVID. You've only se seen Elizabeth's face on the screen, but I know like Ashley and I were just going like, what? <laughs> some of the things she was just saying. So now I'm going to hand it over to Ashley, who I'm sure you're going to make us do our own what? <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. It was so good hearing from both of you, Tammy and Elizabeth. Um, I am not a nurse, so not nearly as harrowing as what you all are doing. Um, I'm a county employee in the Bay Area, SEIU 1021. Um, my bargaining unit has about 900 members. We cover social services and medical social work. So after all the incredibly valuable work that health services is doing, you know, our work is next because the public is really depending on us right now for those safety net services. So we've all been deemed essential workers in the state of California. We issue food stamps and Medicaid. We do child welfare, child protective services, adult protective services, SSI advocacy, and of course, medical social work. And they're working in the hospitals. Um, so right now, you know, I don't know if you all saw the New York Times infographic that came out maybe a week or two ago. Food stamp cases are at a record high. It's the most that they've ever seen, 6 million cases even since the beginning of the pandemic. So there's just a lot of need because people aren't working. Um, and of course, this is why we're here. You know, This is why we're essential and we need our work. So one of the things that's really been hard about this pandemic just generally is that it's been changing literally by the hour. It's just been a real challenge to keep up with everything because our employers not keeping up with all the changes and not responding effectively. And so we've been really having to do that. And I'm really glad that I'm in a unionized workplace because we can do that. And so our team has been really great. Our union leadership and officers have been sharing a lot of these responsibilities, keeping our eye on the news because again, our employers not doing that. So in Contra Costa County, we've had 131 deaths. You know, I think by the end of May, it was like low, like 12, 14 deaths. So the numbers have really spiked and surged a lot. Um, and that's a lot because Governor Newsom has relaxed the shelter in place orders in preparation for reopening. Um, and again, our employer has not adjusted with those numbers regarding that maybe that was not a good decision and decided to make a different choice. Um, they're just looking at seeing, oh, the feds aren't doing anything. The state's not doing anything. So we that absolves us from responsibility too, which is just... Mm -hmm completely inexcusable because every death is unnecessary. And this is not something that we didn't know was coming. So even through all of this, we've been able to recruit shop stewards. Um, we've been able to get members to go to the board of supervisors, you know, elected officials are the bosses at the end of the day when you're a public sector union and really share their story about what it's like to be a working parent. 
you know, working families, especially women, our work is highly gendered in social services and medical social work, um, are really having a very hard time keeping up with work. You know, we've been able to try to get some people working from home, but trying to process cases and also educate your kids remotely through school. And if you have more than one child in the home and only one computer, I mean, there's just so many issues and trying to jam people up about productivity has been really an ongoing problem. I mean, the county's actually, I think, taking advantage and trying to fire more people. I've been in more skelly hearings the last mm-hmm. few months than I have in probably like the last six months to a year. Um, one of the other things that we've been noticing is members, of course, are just stepping up and communicating with us more, which is good. Um, they're supposed to be deep cleaning, you know, a lot of the work sites every nine days. That's not happening. Our members are leaving stuff out on their desks and like, Right, drawing things in the dust and showing us that like it's not getting cleaned. So we've been trying to get some information about these vendors because I'm like, you're just losing money and we need to buy PPE, but <laughs> that's a whole other issue. So they've been taking pictures and sending them to us, which has been great. Um, another big win too is that we've been able to organize in a coalition with 13 of the 15 unions in the county. There's over 10,000 employees um, and 15 unions, 20 contracts. Um, big employers kind of just wild. Um, but we've been able to organize with 13 of them. The only ones that are not organizing with us are the sheriff's association, big surprise and the district attorney investigators, probably because they work so closely with the sheriff. So not, not terrible since we're in this new age of BLM and black lives matter. So not the worst. Um, they did trash us in the local news for asking for hazard pay early on in the pandemic which I thought was really awful because they were saying we need to just do our job. And, you know, we have custodians, we have greeters, clerical staff who register patients, all different types of people who work in health services who never expected to work through a pandemic. You know, somebody who's bringing food to patients is now exposed to something that they never would have planned on being exposed and getting paid very low wages. I mean, it's just preposterous how they're just sort of painting that with a broad brush like that and demonizing workers and they're public servants too. So that's the part that is very frustrating. So we still don't have enough PPE, of course. Um, I know we have to like sign out with a clipboard sometime just to get masks. Um, and this has been an ongoing problem. You know, Tammy was talking about the fires in Sonoma County. We're just South of that. So when there's fires in Sonoma County, we're, we're breathing in the same smoke and it's just as bad in the buildings almost as it mm-hmm. is outside. And so since fall of 2017, every year we've been going after them about health and safety issues because we already had a lot of respiratory problems um, and getting N95 masks then. And so we've, there's no reason for them not to be prepared. They've, they've known about this. We've been on their case about it. They should have had stockpiles of that ages ago. Mm-hmm. Um And so I think one of the things, too, regarding PP, what gets overlooked is there is a lot of attention on health services, rightly so, nurses, doctors, other health services workers, respiratory therapists, et cetera. But what also gets overlooked are social workers who have to make visits in people's homes. Uh, Our physicians and dentists union told us that we should be treating those as medical encounters. When you're a social worker going to investigate abuse or negligence, that is a medical encounter. You don't know what's in the home. And you really should be in full PPE and you should have a separate full PPE gear outfit for each visit. So if you're making more than one visit a day, which most workers are, oftentimes two or three visits a day because we have to drive all over the county and California is large, um, you should have plenty of PPE. And that's not the case. People have the same N95 mask that they've been using for months and wear it till the masks break. 
I mean, we're contributing to community transmission at that point. And we're part of the problem and we're government employees. It's not okay. Um, so that's definitely been an issue. One of the things too, the county recently did is they came up with this sort of like propaganda video where they staged one of the offices to show all the different measures they were taking to show they, they were protecting us. And it, it was just really good to see that our members didn't fall for that. Um, and just sort of laughed at it because we and took pictures again and record like, oh, they they put the stuff there, made the video and they took it all down. You know, so all the caution tape and the barriers and the, the signs saying you're supposed to apply social distancing rules. They took all that away after the video was shot. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, still too many people in the offices. And another thing that we learned, too, because being in this coalition with other unions, we're really able to hear about what's going on throughout the entire county. Um, so Teamsters represents a lot of the HVAC technicians. And because we've, again, we've had questions about this since the fires really started getting really bad out here. Um, and there's supposed to be 10 technicians in the county for over a hundred buildings, which is already too few, but it turns out there's only two because they've kept those vacancies open for since 2016. And so we have a problem because we're not turning over the air enough in a lot of the offices to make sure that people are not catching um, COVID-19 in the offices. And at this point with the surge, um, our members are calling the office Camp COVID now, which I think is pretty funny <laughs> because we <laughs> we get multiple notifications about COVID-19 every day in the workplace since the, the spike started. And so people are refusing to go to work. People are quitting. Um, there's burnout. A lot of health services workers, medical social workers, and all the other various classifications haven't been able to take any time off. You know, they have, they're really burned out. They've been working every day pretty much since March 12th with no breaks. And it's wearing on people. And the fact that people are quitting in the middle of a pandemic in this economy with record-setting unemployment you know, that really, that says a lot about the working conditions. Um, yeah, because our members contact us after every notification that comes out over, you know, our broadcast system. And we had to even fight to get those notifications because initially um, there was exposure in my office, I think April 3rd, and I went and talked to my doctor and she was very upset to hear that we weren't doing the kind of notifications that we need to be doing to let people know, like, there's been a possibility that there's COVID-19 in your workspace. Um, and so one of the things too, is we've had to really fight to make sure that they're doing contact tracing, which we're still fighting on. I don't think they're properly notifying everyone who's been in contact with a worker who has, you know, been positive, um, with COVID-19. And that's also been a fight. One of the things too, is like, we're not getting notice about reassignments. They're sending people new places to the, the field hospital saying, oh, you're gonna go here and trying to cover all of the stuff and make up for the fact that we were never staffed properly in the first place to really be able to handle a sort of emergency like this, and especially a drawn out extended emergency like we're in. Um, and so that's been hard because early in the pandemic, we've been sort of concerned that they were just gonna sort of violate our rights to meet and confer. And so we had to do a lot of sleuthing around um, and ran it all the way up to the SEIU State Council to get assurances that they're not going to violate our rights to meet and confer and that there is emergency provisions because that's what happened in Minnesota. Um, and so we really did find out that it was our employer that was really pushing for that violation. So, you know, I've also wondered if they were trying to use this as like a reason to bust unions. You know, I, I really do think they're trying to take advantage of the situation. 
um, and implement a lot of changes because they know they don't have to notify us because it's an emergency and then they get to meet and confer later. Um, and so that has been, we've been very busy. So I know Tammy said that we have a lot of UOP charges and we've got some lined up as well. <laughs> We're very busy with that. Uh, and also too, even just getting people working from home has been an issue because they don't really have enough equipment. They're, we still have to fight case by case to get this to happen. There's been breakdowns in communication communication among upper management. And at this point, you know, it's August. Those breakdowns are intentional. Uh, and we really are wasting a lot of time fighting that um, because there's going to be workers' comp issues. There's child care issues. You know, there are parts of the county that regularly reach over 100 degrees in the wintertime. And if you're used to working in an air-conditioned office and maybe don't have air conditioning at home, you know, we do have serious health and safety issues, even for folks who are working from home, which sounds very plush for some people, but it has its own problems and challenges as well. So we've been very busy. It's been very disheartening, taking a lot of our time. We're all really burnt out. We're very exhausted, very tired. Um, and it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon. It definitely looks like it's going to last another six months to a year before, you know, a large swath of the population is widely vaccinated. So I am glad that I'm in a union and that I do have some power on the job. But even with all of that, it's been every day is a struggle. I'm having very weird dreams and nightmares now. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Me yeah. too. I am. Um, thank you all so much for this. I've been sort of scribbling notes in my god awful handwriting while you all are talking. Um, and there's a few things that have, have come out in all of your talks, the first thing that I wanted to ask you guys to sort of elaborate on is that each of you have talked about the organizing you've been doing, both having to sort of fight for things that should be basic, like sick time and PPE, but also um, these maybe bigger coalitions and broader networks of organizing that then have been happening before. Um, so I'd love for all of you to talk a little bit about sort of what you've learned organizing as union members during the pandemic. Um, and I don't, I'm just going to pick on, I, let's just go in the same order actually. So Tammy, do you want to start? Um, so this is my first time on a bargaining committee and it was a little bit like watching sausage being made. Um, it's, it's not a pleasant process. <laughs> um, and, and I will say that Providence made it far more adversarial than it needed to be. Because the fact is, we're, we are in a relationship, whether or not they like it. We have power, whether or not they like it. And, um, and if they had come to us and said, listen, we're not going to give you the moon, but what's most important to you, things would have proceeded very differently. Um, we have our nurses, con so we've been out of contract for over a year, uh, which means we would have had the right to strike last July 1st, and we didn't. So I think we showed a tremendous amount of restraint. Um, it's been a real education for members. Um, and one of the things that I've seen is that, you know, they thought COVID would break a certain way that they would receive the benefit of the doubt from COVID and that they could use that to motivate us to stay and right. to take less. And it had just the opposite effect. Right. Um, and 
you know, as a rule, I don't trust anybody who doesn't need to wear comfortable shoes to work. <laughs> and the people who are making decisions about whether I get a new N95 mask have never knowingly been in a room with someone who's intubated and, you know, right. and has COVID. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, when there were not tests, a chest X-ray was the chief right. test. And a portable chest X-ray involves me standing directly next to the patient and physically pulling them forward and putting an imaging plate. Our faces are very close to each other, not for long, but it happens. And um, I don't think that they calculated what that would be like. Um, so I think it has galvanized us in ways. And I noticed something from um, Ashley and Elizabeth because they're, they're publicly funded facilities and mine is not. And they have less money. And the struggle that they're having is really against society standards of what's important and how much money we give things. But my struggle is that money is literally no object. And I'm still getting scraps. Mm -hmm. So this is, this ultimately is not about money. It's about what we value and who we value. Um, Three quarters of our of COVID patients in Sonoma County or Latinx. Um, so that's what we're seeing. And virtually all the deaths have been elderly people with comor or people with severe comorbidities. So from a labor standpoint, it has, we were primed by having a really awful time bargaining. Um, we were galvanized by the knowledge that this is our lives. Mm -hmm. And, and just for people who aren't in the medical field, in February, if I came out of a room and untied a mask and had it hang around my chest and then tied it back on and went into another room, I could be reprimanded for that. That would be a finding in a state or federal investigation. We would be written up for that. Mm -hmm. This is drilled into us. Being clean and infection control are drilled into us, and it's a darn good thing they are. So having to rewear a mask is kind of like rewearing socks and underwear. Like it's for us with our training, there's something fundamentally disgusting about it. So it's not just you. It's, oh, my gosh, six months ago, I'd be written up for this. And now I'm supposed to wear it for six months. So it, it goes very fundamentally against our training and against our scientific knowledge of how disease is passed. So, you know, we learned that when money's no object, it's really just about people and greed. Um, we learned just where we fall in the pecking order and how no one's going to take care of us. So we better do that ourselves. And I think that and our nurses fall out of contract September 30th. And while they could not legally pick, um, strike with us, they were out in numbers every day. And we had a tremendous amount of community support, community leaders, city council members, state representatives. A lot of people came down on our side. Um, so I think I think COVID has motivated us rather than shamed us. And it's pointed out that we as a society have valued the wrong things. Oh. 
Elizabeth? Yeah, I think um, similarly to Tammy, I mean, um, what we found with the collective actions that we've been doing, and I, I think it, it, it's been really um, very difficult um, for people to realize just with, with COVID, the how little our employers actually care about us. Like it, it has, it's front and center about life and death, right? And it takes a little bit of a while for people to understand that, but it really became and has become pronounced. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon because I think it means people's minds have really shifted. So, you know, for example, we started with a collective action around not having access to N95 masks. This was, you know, before the surge actually hit in Chicago, probably in late February, early March. And it, it was something that was really profound. Um, one day we had N95 masks, the next day they were gone and all the drawers where we, you would normally have them were cleared out and they were locked up. And so we had a huge fight around that. Um, and it took a couple people actually leading that fight to sh- build the confidence of our coworkers to see what would be possible, right? So for example, in our emergency room, our chief steward, um, she more or less with groups of emergency room nurses they didn't get access to N95 masks. Um, they were being asked to obviously intubate patients who were coming in. They might have been COVID. We don't know. But you can't get an N95 mask out of lockup from the manager and intubate a patient at the same time. So you're talking about exposures that people have. And so um, she did some, uh, along with, like I said, her emergency room nurses, some mini sort of sit downs in the break room and refused to come out until the N95s were easily accessible and and for use while people are coming into the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And so we had to generalize out those struggles to the rest of our members because it's a huge hospital, Um, 900 nurses. Everybody has a varying degree of sort of understanding about what they can do. And we had numerous like ongoing discussions um, with people uh, with our nurses about what was possible, what they could do, because it, it completely changed within COVID. I mean, we always had short staffing. We always knew that our employers probably didn't care about us or our patients. And if something would happen that would go wrong, they would blame us, right? They would discipline us, but this went, took it to a whole nother level. And so, you know, I think it taught people that just like what Tammy said, we had to rely on ourselves. It is stunning how little our managers, and I'm not just talking about immediate, but all the way up, people had no idea what we did. I mean, I couldn't even believe it um, in the sense of no idea what our day-to-day work looks like. So people took it upon themselves to make it really obvious to them um, and that we had to fight. And what was important for us was to be protected. And it wasn't that we just protected nurses. We would protect doctors, we worked with our support staff and, and we would say, look, this is what we want. Therefore we need, you can do it too. Right. And we're going to stand behind you if that's the case. Um, so I feel like that sort of idea of we had to rely on ourselves and that we are the best people to know what it is that our patients need. And we need to protect ourselves to protect them. 
became and has become really much more obvious in our hospital, which is why we had this action on Friday that I mentioned before. There were literally probably almost a hundred nurses there. And I know that's not social distance, but people were so enraged about the lack of understanding about what we were doing day to day when our, when our um, units were COVID that we, you know, and it was a whole new group of, of new, new leading nurses, people who have put themselves out there to actually take up this fight. And I think that that was really incredible. It's like I said, it's going to be an ongoing thing and people don't want to back down. And we're, we are going into contract negotiations. Our contract expires in November. We'll see how that goes. This is a weird time to be negotiating contracts, right? With not only COVID, but massive budget cuts. They're talking about layoffs at our hospital in and our system and what that will mean for us to demand what we need, right? And we have also worked in coalition with SEIU in particular, the local here, Local 73, Service Employees International Union, who are, they represent our ancillary staff, you know, all of our support staff. They have similar fights around hazard pay, being in the hospital, you know, dealing with um, abusive managers. And it's really, I think, pushed us to being, rather than unions standing alone around their own issues, to come together right now and all the things that might have been barriers in the past, we're, we're working through pushing those things aside because it's really important that we're in this fight together yeah. um, and that we're unified in it in a way that I don't think I've ever seen um, because it's it really comes down to us against them and we need numbers. And people are really, um, I think their eyes are opening to the reality of what it means to live um, and work, to live in the system and to work in the hospital and the healthcare system, which really doesn't seem to prioritize our needs and our lives, um, and really is about keeping money in the in the hands of, even in a public healthcare system, you know, $77 million from the CARE Act, where's it going, right? And that that should actually be paid to the people who are on the front lines who are actually doing the work. And we're going to continue to have to be on the front lines. So we're going to have to continue to keep doing this sort of confrontation, you know, and, and also to be linking arms with others, other unions, um, in a unified fight. So. Yeah. One of the things I've been saying throughout this pandemic is that these are very clarifying times just because the stakes are very clear. They're literally life and death. And so what side you're on is very clear. And the members are really learning that. Um, the amount of communication that we're all having with our members as officers with the rank and file more generally has increased a lot like it is contract negotiations. Um, our contract's not anywhere near expiring like Tammy Elizabeth's, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that I think has helped because we went on strike in 2016 for 10 days, just our cha um, chapter did, uh, we really sort of kept up the energy and really kept up the sort of militancy since then. And we've been able to go back into a coalition with at least eight other unions. So there's nine of us negotiating around healthcare. Um, the unions and the health services department have been negotiating together as a coalition around workplace violence prevention. So we were already organizing around a lot of these critical issues going into this. So we were able to like hit the ground running in March. I mean, March 12th, we were already in communications. I was able to send emails to other unions and we were able to already get that up and running and going. I mean, March 16th, we walked, marked on the boss, our labor relations manager, who is no longer with us, um, and asked him, like, what are you going to do? So 
I think one of the things is that's been good is that because we were already doing prior organizing and building relationships with other unions, that was able to happen. Um, our central labor council has actually been really helpful as well, too. I mean, the firefighters are even at the table with us going to bat and like really showing us some solidarity. They don't need us. The firefighters can get whatever they want, but they're still there saying, hey, you all need to like improve your communication and give people daily briefings so that they know what they're walking into on a daily basis, you know, because firefighters, that's the kind of work that they're doing every day. They have, you know, hazard pay sort of built into their wages and their retirement in ways that like a lot of us don't in our unions. Um, so I think that's one of the big critical things. One of the things I keep trying to remind members too is like labor is labor, you know, try not to undermine people just because they're in a different union and they've got different letters and numbers we're still all union members together and we're all going to sink or swim together. So it's been, again, very clarifying. People have really learned who up until the, like before this pandemic started, thought their supervisors on their side or, you know, the director was really nice and, you know, they never had a bad encounter. All of those things, all those illusions started to fall away for people. And it's becoming very clear that our jobs are political, especially in the public sector, because our bosses are elected officials okay. and we're often voters too. I mean, my board of supervisor, I'm a voter in his district. I mean, and he has a direct impact over whether or not we have proper staffing levels, whether we have proper PPE and supplies in the job. You know, so that relationship, I think, is also becoming very clear to people as well. Um, and so that's been also very encouraging because sometimes it's hard to make that argument seem kind of extract on a day to day basis. But when you're in sort of like the heat of battle like this with COVID, it's there are no, it's very hard to sort of like play this another way as much as people want to try. It's very clarifying. So people really know which side people are on. So I have a few audience questions and I'm going to take a couple of those right now because um, they are things I was going to ask you anyway. Great audience. Um, so the first question was from Harley Boldridge. Um, and the question was, what advice do you have for healthcare workers who aren't able to unionize? Um, so this person is from Iowa, where they had a nasty union busting bill go through in 2017. And again, I guess we can just keep going in the same order if you want to, Cammie, start. Um, I'll pray for you. Um, I think... I think you you know who's protect, who's going to protect you. Um, I would document everything. I would document what patients you're spending time with and in what capacity. I would educate my coworkers so that not only are they documenting on their own behalf, but that you have each other's backs. Um, I would not have any potentially iffy um, communication with management without documenting it. So even if it's a quick text message just to confirm, we talked about this or, or an email to yourself, you, you need to build your own bunker. You need to keep track of who you've been in contact with. You need to have your own back. You need to have your colleagues backs. And, um, and if management pleasantly surprises you, then yay. Um, but I doubt that they will. Um, I wanted to say at my hospital, just that I feel like my immediate managers are trying very hard. Um, but unfortunately, they're not making the decisions. So even if you do have a good relationship with an immediate manager, 
that's, they have to dance with, with who brung them. And that isn't you. So you have to have your own back. You have to have your colleagues back and you have to document. I mean, I, I think that that's really good advice. Um, I do know that we have been approached by a lot of nurses in the city of Chicago who are non-union about unionizing because, so, and I know it, it's really frightening because there've been a lot of stories about, you know, people, um, nurses and doctors and other healthcare workers talking about the lack of PPE and refusing to go into rooms, right? Or um, any number of issues around hazard pay. But we've been approached, in fact, tonight, I'm going to be on a call with a group of nurses who want to unionize and they have basic questions. So I think it's not outside of the realm of possibility to see that as an option and a long-term option um, to really think about, as well as what Tammy's saying, document, be very aware, have each other's backs. It is possible to actually change things collectively if your supervisor or other people realize that you have, you're with each other and not with them and to make some demands. Um, it doesn't preclude that they won't retaliate, but there are also ways to reach out to unions to get some advice. You're protected actually to do collective action, um, even if you're not unionized. There's some really good resources that I think Labor Notes has about that because we've seen non-unionized workers outside of healthcare have strikes, actually, Amazon workers and other essential workers during the beginning of the pandemic, and they continue to do so. So it's possible. And I think that's really what's hopeful right now is the potential to have people and the majority of us aren't in unions, right, in, in the country. Some of us have that. And I, I, I'm really grateful to have it. But to think about what it would mean to actually get talk to someone about resources for those types of protections, even if you're non-union, and also what it would mean to be part of uh, an organization like all of us have on this call that can actually protect you. And, and unions are looking for that right now. Um, uh, they're looking to actually reach out. In fact, we're just overwhelmed in the city of Chicago because, you know, public sector, we were able to speak out as public sector employees and we are all over the media um, in the beginning of this uh, surge in Chicago because we also ostensibly are protected under, you know, rights of free speech. So I would reach out and see and, and see what's possible. Um, but again, you know, be very careful about what you're doing and, and definitely document and, 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 and keep, you know, keep everyone, you know, on the same page um, um, in that is on your unit or in your workplace about protecting each other. Yeah, definitely going to second what everyone's saying about documenting. That's really important. And don't think it has to be super complicated. It can just be the who, what, when, where, you know, maybe you send yourself an email. My supervisor said, I can't use a mask. This just happened. And you just keep a running paper trail of this. That's super important. Um, and also too, reaching out to nearby unions as well, you know, established unions have a new organizing department usually, and we're in an unprecedented opening right now where people are looking to organize workers. So basically act like you're already in a union, have each other's back, take action together collectively, you know, show solidarity, don't throw each other under the bus. 
Um, I'm going to put my DSA hat on. We also have a project called the Emergency Worker Organizing Committee, which is a collaboration with UE, which is the United Electrical Radio and Television Workers um, and Machine Workers, sorry, and DSA. And so if you go to workerorganizing.org, you can fill out the intake form and an organizer will contact you. And a lot of those organizers are very experienced. They can take you from first contact to first contract. Um, so definitely fill that out. Um, and you can definitely get some assistance that way. We've seen a lot of wins, seeing Taco Bell workers getting wins on the job and, you know, they're not organized, you know, nationally in a union. Um, so there's there's definitely um, resources out there. But in the meantime, definitely document, have each other's backs. You can still take collective action tomorrow. Um, and then for the long term, definitely think about unionizing because all those gains that you might get will will disappear without the protections of having that in writing in a contract. So you really want to make sure that that is still on your mind for the long run. Um, so I have one that's sort of a follow-up to that, I think. Um, it's a little bit more specific, but what do you say to coworkers who think the employer is doing the best they can? Ashley, you kind of already mentioned this. Um, do you find it's most effective to move them with facts or with feelings? Honestly, it's both. Um, you know, some workers are very good at like being very impassioned and really telling their story because they're, you know, whatever, checking all the right boxes or something. They all, you also do need to use facts too and just let them know, like you say these are the facts, but we're also keeping track as well. So this is something too that I had no idea that I would have to do when I started a lot of labor organizing is the amount of like sleuthing and sort of like investigating and sort of like playing Sherlock to just find the facts and the fact finding, we ha you just have to do that as well. You say that there were only two cases. We know that there were five, you know, so you just have to come at them and like really contest every, the narrative that they're creating and stepping up and let them know we are watching you and we are keeping track because at some point they're going to realize like we can go to the news. We're going to write articles. We're going to organize. We're going to have a press conference and embarrass you in the media. I mean, I'm on this panel with you all talking about my employer. I mean, at some point they're going to have to, you know, get with it and, you know, accept reality for what it is. Um, so definitely do that. Employers don't like being embarrassed in the media. They really don't like that. So definitely use that to your advantage. What? You mean you can contact your friendly neighborhood labor journalist? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had conversations about that, you know, going into the strike. Because what we heard from our coworkers was, but what about COVID? And I find that asking questions is actually a really good strategy. What, you feel that they're doing a good job? Tell me why you feel that way. I would love to hear a happy story. Um, and then dig a little deeper. You know, did you hear that What's-Her-Face was refused in N95 at 2 a.m.? when she was about to x-ray someone in severe enough respiratory distress that an ambulance brought them to the hospital at 2 a.m. on, you know, Sunday morning. Oh, you know, um, so I, I don't, I don't think it's about winning an argument all the time. Sometimes it's about winning hearts and it's about having them, you know, think critically about what resources really have been brought to bear and something that I've said to management in front of my colleagues is 
Uh, first of all, I this when the CEO comes to staff meetings, I I drill him down. I want numbers. What are the numbers? Um, so that everybody hears that. It's not just me telling them. But beyond that, I've also said things like to to our immediate um, managers, I don't I don't blame you for this. I, my objections are not to you as a human being. My objections, when I voice them, are to conditions, are to processes, are to values. So, and I would hope that you could at least see my side of this, even if you don't necessarily agree. And, you know, the Friday before the strike, I was walking out behind my manager and I said, I want you to know that I regret the week you're going to have next week. And I'm sorry, because you're going to have a bad week next week. There's no question that it's going to be awful for you. And if, and if we could have found a different way to send that message, we would have. But for more than a year, and now they're putting our safety at risk. And so management doesn't necessarily have to be the enemy. We don't have to dislike them. We have to educate them just as we educate our colleagues. Um, it's much better to have people with power as an ally. And, you know, this manager told me that it, it really helped to hear me say that. So we don't have to be adversarial even when they are. We can be very clear that this is about this is about my safety. This is about my values. This is about me being able to do what I need to do. I mean, just in response to that, I think it different people are have different ways in which they respond. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree. It's not I don't think it's a one time discussion like mm -hmm. this is about in what I love about healthcare is it's very collective and you see mm -hmm. each other a lot mm -hmm. and you're interacting. Um, and so you can actually have ongoing conversations. So I do believe in this immediate moment. Um, facts are good and making sure you, you have all of those things, but there's a lot more sort of passion right now because this is so, it is really about life and death. So, um, I feel as if people are coming to that realization. And so, um, so it's a combination of those two things. I think it's, it's about, um, making sure that you go through all the facts. I mean, it's really important. Like when, we did our collective action last Friday. This whole new group of, of, of nurses who are leading went and documented every time. They took pictures and they showed how many, they literally counted how many times we were doing work that was not really what nurses do in a regular way. And they sent it because it was part of a grievance. And it was really thorough. And apparently our employer had never seen anything like that before. So they granted it to us. That's part of the the issue with this is that we won the grievance and now we're having to negotiate and fight and being told that we really aren't going to get much out of this. And so, but there was a lot of passion in that room on Friday, meaning I don't mean yelling and screaming. I mean, people who won't back down. That's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. What do you mean? And you use management's words such as, well, we don't think you worked very hard. It's not possible you worked that hard. And people saying, what are you talking about? And what, tell me why you would say something like that. And, and it just helps people really understand 
how disconnected people who are making the decisions are mm-hmm. for running the hospital from those of us who actually run the hospital mm-hmm. every day <laughs> because we're the ones taking care of patients. And I was really impressed by people who just said, and they use people's words and they use the, the facts to then put it back in the court and say, so tell me why you would say something like that. How could you? We gave you all these facts and you still turn around and say that, which says to us that you're prioritizing something other than us and our patients. And that is a problem and we're not going away. So that would be kind of my response. And this moment provides the opportunity to do that and combine those things, I think, in a really powerful way. Mm -hmm. So we touched on this earlier, but um, we did have an audience question also about healthcare workers and Black Lives Matter and what people can do, sort of what healthcare workers' role can be and what demands they can add maybe to the movement. Um, We have a a very small Black community in Sonoma County. Um, We have a much larger Latinx community. Um, so yes, black lives matter. And, and I, you know, I've done a lot of work as a white woman of privilege to, to get out of my privilege and try to see things from other people's point of view, both specifically related to black lives matter, but also related to the experiences of other people. I think we're all in the process of, of going, wait a minute, the white this hetero male filter is not the only filter. It's not the only lens. It's not the only valid point of view. So part of that is empowering ourselves and saying that my point of view is valid as well. And so is the point of view of other people with whom I don't share a color or a lot of other things, but they have things I need to listen to and, and that I can learn from and become a better person as, as a part of it. Um, So we had rather smaller um, protests. We did have protests in Sonoma County and we saw some pretty shocking police brutality. We had one guy who has been a um, in various social justice movements and is pretty well known in the county, got shot in the face with a non-lethal round and shoved a couple of his teeth into his sinus cavity. and. Okay. I'm I'm feeling like if that was an accident, it was a pretty bad one. Um, so we've seen some severe injuries. And so while I speak to systemic change when I have the opportunity, I also make it very clear to my patients when I'm in a room with them that I'm an advocate and that they are safe. Your I mean, turn. my turn. Um, I mean, there, there has been a lot that, as I said, in Chicago, when um, the movement around black lives really began to um, change this country, I think, and, and it will continue to do so. Um, it was amazing to me how many of my coworkers, and I work with mainly Um, you know, people of color in the, in the county system, in the public health, which is not unusual, right? I mean, it is a huge employer 
um, and unionization amongst African-Americans and people of color is high um, in the public sector. So um, they were incredibly, my coworkers, very energized to do that work, to be out um, in the streets, but also to do that within the hospital um, and, you know, to, to take leadership, too. I think that was the most important thing for us as a union was to really figure out how to develop more leadership amongst our our nurses who should be speaking out on this. And, and we've made a lot of strides in that direction about talking. My union came out with several uh, resolutions, and I know a lot of unions did this when what happened to George Floyd um, happened. Um, and that we wanted to make those, re- so it was a resolution in opposition to what happened in Minneapolis um, and, and calling for some reforms. Um, then it, it talked, we supported the protesters and against the brutalization of the protesters, the use of tear gas, which obviously makes COVID worse. Um, and in case that wasn't known amongst the, the, <laughs> the, the people using it, it, it actually creates more airborne and people cough and sneeze. Um, and also that we called for a defunding of the police. Those have been really critical conversations to be having and explaining right now within our union, which um, there, there are a lot of different opinions about it. So that's been incredibly important has been about helping to go through that process of, of really talking about what this means. And it's also about addressing the fact front on that within the healthcare system, there's racism. It is rife with racism, how we treat black patients, how we don't take them seriously around issues around pain or their disease. We see it every day and we have to push back against that. Um, And that that is really critically important. We have done a couple of different social distancing rallies um, just at our hospitals here in the city around black lives and taking a knee. We also did, it was in early July, um, a demonstration which brought in all sorts of coalition uh, partners, um, Physicians for Natural Health Program, other unions who work within the healthcare sector, Black Lives Matter here in Chicago, to have a march through the medical district about the racial disparities that exist as far as if you just go down the street in front of, um, uh, not just down the street, but you go down the street um, in the medical district, it, it just shows, you know, how many people, um, there's a, a difference in income from one neighbor to, to the next and how people are treated, right? Um, and then we've recently done, it was actually another Haymarket event last week, which was about bringing trade unionists together from um, SEIU 73, the Chicago Teachers Union was on. We had someone from Physicians for National Health Program, someone from Black Abolitionist Network, which is a local um, network of the different Black Lives Matter groups here in Chicago to really talk about racism is a is a um, public health crisis. And what does that mean? And how are we going to change it? So, I mean, that's been some of the stuff and it's just a beginning, really. And I think it's been really important. I think it's got to be intertwined with a discussion around the pandemic and who's affected by it and how we fight that, as well as you can see with the economy going the way it is, who is actually suffering the most um, with layoffs, with the unemployment benefits being cut um, and things like that. So that's that's some of the work 
that we've been doing here. And, and I hope that we can do more of that. There are a lot of things unions could be doing. It's been yeah. a very overdue conversation. Um, and I'm really glad that we're getting around to it. And I hope we continue to organize around it and actually come up with like real concrete material wins and not just get wrapped up in a lot of symbolism of murals and whatnot. Um, we really actually need to make real material changes in people's lives. And so I hope we keep up the militants. We don't. No value. It's absolutely an empathy for victims. Sorry. And get uh, bureaucratized. So one of the things that we've been doing is we've had lots of marches as well. You know, um, the week before Juneteenth, Juneteenth, there was one, the whole West Coast port was shut down, you know, a billion dollars a day when the port workers don't work. I mean, that's extracting huge gains. Uh, you know, a lot of teachers unions are organizing around getting uh, police out of schools, K through 12 and colleges and universities. There's been success around that. Um, Teachers are receiving death threats over these demands, which I find very interesting. Uh, that definitely happened on Monday in Oakland. And I know that UTLA also received death threats over these as well. Um, there's been success of getting, you know, like in Seattle, getting the police union out of their labor council. I know that's a demand that people are making in various parts of the country too, to get, you know, police unions out. And then also too, you know, a lot of unions like SEAU or Teamsters or AFSCME, and I'm sure there are others, have cops embedded in their union. So, you know, um, SEAU, NEGE, you know, represents cops. They represent Atlanta PD. So when Rayshard Brooks was murdered, that was one of my union members. I mean, not right here in California, but like in Atlanta. And so that is definitely something that people are organizing around too, because we do want to have a just transition for people who maybe their jobs depend on police department budgets, like they're a clerk or a warrant specialist, like should they really get wrapped up in this when we're looking at the people who actually are killing black and brown people? Um, also, we're looking at corrections officers, you know, we're looking at the whole piece of this. And so I'm really glad that this conversation is happening. But one of the things I think people are concerned about, and I hope we don't get too caught up in, is protecting dues, you know, making sure that we aren't suffering a hit to our, our pocketbook. And I'd rather take that hit early so that we stay in contact with the larger swath of the working class and that we stay relevant as the organized labor movement rather than being on the wrong side of the issue to protect our pocketbooks today and then suffer in the long term because then the labor movement is continually seen as like Joe the plumber, white guys who don't care about racial justice, et cetera. And that's just not true. As Elizabeth said, you know, like black people are some of the most highly unionized workers in the country. And that is changing. Women, black and brown folks, we are increasingly the face of the labor movement. So we have to take this very seriously and make some real material changes. All right, so last question. You can do this very quickly and easily because it's a very simple, small question. What kind of healthcare system should we have? <laughs> not, not for profit. I'm going to jump out there and say socialized medicine like NHS. <laughs> That's okay. I'm, I'm going to say similar. I think you know, I'm for Medicare for all. I think we need okay. substantial change where I've said this before, where we're actually running the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Those of us who do the work should run the system. So, yeah, I mean, healthcare is a human right and people shouldn't be profiting off of our misery. We all get sick. We all age. We all die. No one's escaped that yet. That means we need to have 
something that's so critical to our life just be decommodified and taken out of the market. So Medicare for all first, of course, but, you know, keep your eye on the, on the mm-hmm. goal, on the prize. Yeah. Thank you all so much. You're amazing. Thank you to everybody who came and joined us for listening, for sharing your questions, for tweeting about this. Um, it's great to have you and this will be archived on the Haymarket Books YouTube channel so you can share it with all your friends who couldn't make it live. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.